0: From the AutoLine studios, here is your host, John McElroy.
1: I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week, where the discussion is going to be about some of the early formative years of the UAW, and that's because we've got a great book here called Built in Detroit, a story of the UAW, a company and a gangster. And we've got the author of that book with us today, Bob Morris, a son of a very leading UAW executive. And Bob, I want to thank you for joining us here on AutoLine this week. It's great to be here. Thank you. Also joining us today are Mark Phelan from the Detroit Free Press and Henry Payne from the Detroit News, and great having the both of you here, too. Thank you, John. You know, Bob, I think everybody knows a little bit about the early years of the UAW, the sit-down strike in Flint against General Motors, the battle of the overpass uh, with the Ford Motor Company. But what your book really shows is that the true formative years of the UAW were at the Briggs Manufacturing Company, something I really knew nothing about. Well, it was Briggs, but there was other plants around the city. Uh, Some
2: of the big three and Hudson and Packard and uh, the the old companies. But Briggs was an incredibly important uh, plant because they built bodies for Ford, Chrysler, Dodge, Packard, Hudson. You had a body by Fisher for GM and then Briggs. And so if something happened at Briggs, if there was a strike... There, they stopped auto production throughout. the So uh, it gave them great bargaining power. Incredible. Caused problems, too, because there'd be a lot of wildcat strikes, uh, and that created other problems in, in the book.
0: And, and Briggs had a level of hostility to unions that makes the stuff that we see in the news today you know, look like child's play. Uh, without a
2: doubt. And, uh, of course, the book, uh, that's where the gangster comes in in the book. Uh, ultimately, Briggs fought. Uh, much like Henry Ford did, uh, the organization by the UAW, when it was organized, they dragged their feet on contracts. Uh, they would, uh, people would get fired for a lot of different reasons. Uh, uh, at the bottom line, it was tr- to figure out how to weaken the union, weaken strong leadership. And uh, and so, yeah, it was a very ugly, a, and it grew into a very
0: ugly situation. And, and your father, Ken, who was a, a formative figure in, in the UAW and, and plays a, a, a huge role in your book, of course, he received a savage beating.
2: When uh, Ken returned uh, from World War II, he was elected by acclamation to a very high local union office. He, he had no enemies. And Ken was the kind of guy, he, about my size, he was not a... Uh, a muscle man in the union, uh, was known as a, a peacemaker, if anything. He was the guy who could negotiate things, work problems out. Within a month after his return, he was beaten to within an inch of his life, uh, fractured skull in a couple of places, broken arm, broken leg, uh, back problems, injuries. All, you know,
1: I mean, it was amazing he survived. And this is where the gangster part of the story comes this in, is, right? Exactly. This is underworld mafia figures hi, figures hired by the company to go beat him within an inch of his life. Well, you know, the company and there was
2: a corrupt UAW official here, too, all got together and said uh, the leader of Local 212 was a guy, the Briggs local, was a fellow named Amil Macy. Amil would eventually, with Walter Ruther, be the top leaders of the UAW. And uh, there were some people who were out to get Emil and uh, and Briggs didn't want a strong militant labor leader that they had to deal with. The funny part though, when Briggs was organized in 1937, Amo Maisie, uh sent uh, pamphlets out to everybody saying we have a contract. That contract means we have to cooperate with the company. So the, the labor guys felt that if they would co- cooperate and try to make sure their members
0: would cooperate, but they expected the same in return. And no more wildcat strikes, basically, was what cooperating with the company meant, that's, right?
2: That's right. And there was a pro, Sometimes these guys would strike. Briggs, uh, it's important to mention, Briggs was a huge company, uh, the main factory on the east side of Detroit, on Mack Avenue, stretched about a half a mile in length, employed uh, upwards of 30,000 people. And so it was a very difficult, difficult place. Pete Waldmeyer told me he worked there uh, when he was a kid. And this is in the 50s. He said, I don't know how anybody could manage that place. So it's a very difficult place to manage, and there were a lot of wildcat strikes.
3: Uh, uh, Bobby, one of the things interesting to me, I mean, this, this town, there's so, this, is, this is a real 21st century town. Of course, now we're into the 21st century, and that's going to write a, a whole new chapter of manufacturing sure. history. Uh, it's gone so global now. But, it, but, but the early half of the, of the 20th century in Detroit is is the incubator of american manufacturing as we know it today i mean you, uh, henry ford the chrysler brothers this this extraordinary assembly line manufacturer that started up here in the in the early part of the 20th century is about uh, is about this this huge immigration into this town uh, the 5 uh, 5 a day work uh, uh, you, you go from the production of a few hundred cars a year to millions of cars a year. I mean, just this incredible boom town it's, it's a labor mecca. Uh, people are coming here from everywhere. They can't believe that they're getting paid $5 a day. You, you, your book, and, and talking about the beginning of the labor movement post-war, uh, um, well really pre war and, yeah, in, and in in the mid 30s Depends which war
1: you 're talking about pre
3: pre war and then on into the uh, into the 1950s that labor attitude changes uh, so what ha- what what is happening there uh, in in the middle part of the century that now is is creating this adversarial uh, relationship between labor and management that really hasn't gone away today? Well, you know, I look at it a little bit differently.
2: And I think when unions were legalized, uh, you know, with the Wagner Act, with uh, uh, the Roosevelt administration, there was a lot of hope that there would be, in a sense, a little bit of, about what the ideal was in, at, uh, at the Tennessee plant with Volkswagen, that there'd be work uh, groups, uh, work committees, and there'd be a very progressive way of dealing with labor management issues. And in fact, w- unfortunately, what happened is the companies really were just so anti-union. Everything became adversarial, much more so than I think, you know, I think it's just a sad story about uh, what happened because it didn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one of the important points in uh, with the labor leaders, and maybe that affected some things too. These labor leaders were incredibly young, incredibly smart. They would have succeeded at anything they wanted to do. In the, uh, the chapter on World War II, I spent more time on it than maybe I should have, but it tells a story about my father, Ken, who really thrived during World War II in, in, in the Army Air Corps. And it demonstrated to him that he could do whatever he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was come back to Detroit and try to build a strong labor movement.
1: You know, we talk about this adversarial relationship of capital versus labor, But I was very interested in reading how much internal warfare there was within the labor movement. I didn't know that there were two UAWs at one point, one with the AFL, a different one with the CIO. As you mentioned, there was some pretty unsavory characters in the UAW as well. So that was a big eye-opener for me. It wasn't just labor versus the corporations. There were fights, deep, deep fights, vicious fights, in fact, within the union itself. Deep fights, but also a lot of different
2: uh, men and some women, people who are ambitious, people who wanted to become president or move up within the union ranks, it's political. You get elected. So you have a whole, you know, a lot of different dynamics are going on. But the other element, especially, that uh, I think highlighted the 30s and what I tried to get into was, it was Harry Bennett who tried to co-opt the first elected UAW president, Homer Martin, to essentially make the UAW a company union, and Henry uh, uh, Harry Bennett, of course, being, being Henry Ford's right hand—the goon,
1: as it were—as he's been you yes. know, depicted in history.
2: For yes. Henry well, Ford. No, yeah, well, yeah. Harry Bennett was one of the most unique, one of the most powerful people who ever lived in the state of Michigan, and uh, he got he ran the largest private army uh, in the in the world, and he recruited from Jackson Prison. He was on the parole board. Uh, state parole board. So, you know, it was that was the people who the labor movement guys were dealing. That was the ba- people on the Battle of the Overpass.
0: Yeah. Well, and one of the interesting stories that you tell in the book, and, and I mean, it, it's a history, but it's a book full of fa- really fascinating stories about very interesting characters, your father and, and Maisie and others. And, and there, there's a fascinating story, you know, where Ford didn't want production at Briggs disrupted because it was where Ford got the bodies for its cars. And if I recall correctly, he sent Harry Bennett to meet the you know, local leader, the the UAW leader yep, at Dick Frankenstein. Briggs. And, and he said, look, Mr. Ford does not want to support the union, but he wants this strike to go away. What do you need? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. That, I thought that was fascinating and was not something that I expected.
2: Exactly. and I mean, it was very interesting. Henry Ford was opposed to unions without question but number one he wanted production he didn't want any slowdown in production he wanted his uh, manufacturing lines to keep moving to keep building cars and that was the number one issue and if anything affected production he'd tell Harry Bennett Harry deal with this and of course Harry Bennett would do whatever his boss wanted by whatever means necessary
0: Is is that attitude, do you think, why when Ford Motor Company finally accepted the idea that the union's here to stay, that in many ways they went from having the worst imaginable relationship to a pretty good one with the union?
2: You know, actually, I talked when I did most of my research on this book down at Wayne State at the Ruther Archives, and Doug Frazier had an office there, and uh, and Doug's an old family friend, but we would talk a lot about this. And he said, you know, I I asked him kind of a similar question. And he said it was amazing. We'd fight like hell to get a union, and then once we got a contract, we got pretty much whatever we wanted. You know, I mean, it was it was pretty you know interesting. And that I think also fit, goes back to your
3: point. You know. Well, yeah, and, and and what's I mean, I come from a manufacturing family, sure. uh, from electronics manufacturing family, and and I can tell you there's no there's no company founder who puts the capital and the risk into that company that wants a second management in his company. I mean, there, there's, there's no executive I know that wants a union in his shop, but I think the experience of the UAW in those formative years have, have taught entrepreneurs how, how you treat labor properly. I mean, you come in and you create an environment from the ground up where the workers have a say from the get-go, because the conditions you're talking, that, that you, you describe in Briggs with the presses and whatnot, I mean, these are, these were horrific. Uh, conditions yeah. and and at some point it's not enough that these guys get paid a lot, uh, you know, because other industries come in and they and they match that and 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 and, and, and unions I think had, had really improved working conditions to the point today now where it's hard for unions to get into new plants because management are so focused on keeping their workers happy because they don't want that second layer of management well, second guessing them in the plant. So what you're saying is that the strong unions build the
2: model that uh, other businesses copy to make sure they don't have a union so without the union to be there in the first place workers would be right back where they were in the 1930s right and do and, and
3: yeah and, and even, you know, I, I make the man- analogy of the civil rights movement where mm-hmm. the civil rights movement in this country uh, redefined what, what, it, what, it, what, what civil liberties were for everybody. Uh, for for women on through minorities and and, and today the, the, the civil rights movement in many ways has been bastardized because the civil rights movement has had to find other ways to maintain power and you see and, and with the with the modern union with the UAW i think it's almost unrecognizable from some of the readers that, from some of the leaders that you describe in the mid 50s i mean you got bob king in the la- in, in, in recent months trying to unionize the VW plant with card check. I mean, that's the most anti-democratic wave. I mean, the secret Ooh, ballot. Well, that's certainly one interpretation of right. this, yeah, but, but it's not the only one. We could but talk card,
2: about yeah, uh, but, Senator but Carter too. Is, yeah, but card <laughs> check,
3: but, but, but you see what yeah. I'm saying? I mean, card check is inherently undemocratic. And, 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 and here, here is Bob King working with management in the VW plant just, to, just, try, to try to get the union power. Just, in just
2: one thing that I think is very important. Uh, The UAW, I saw it with my father negotiating with a lot of different companies. Uh, 1979, Chrysler's about ready to go belly up. Yes, they got a government bailout, but without the UAW concessions, Chrysler would would never have made it. The same is true, look what Ron Gettelfinger did with General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler to make sure that we would still have a domestic auto industry. Well, I, I,
1: we could debate all that, too, because <laughs> the, the union didn't start to give concessions until those operations were bleeding red, red ink. They were losing billions in North America, and it was only then that the union
0: gave them the concessions. How much of that lays at the feet of the management teams that accepted the contracts that led to the, them to believe. Well, this the is a point that Bob That's raises the in the book too. Yeah. Hey, management
1: agreed to all this, but I'd point out to uh, it was the '97 or the '98 GM strike when they had negotiated a piecework contract. The workers were getting their work done in two to three hours and going home. And General Motors said, "Wait a minute, we 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 need you guys to work eight hours." And they were like, "No, we're out of here." And they said, "Well, if you guys walk off, we're going to pull the dies out of the plant." The union said, "You pull the dies out of the plant, we're going on strike." Three billion dollars in losses later, General Motors went. Pfft, we, we got to cave. Yeah. We've got to cave. So I don't entirely buy the argument that oh, this was just management, you know, agreeing to oh, the it, stuff. It took both sides it, to do but, it. But, it uh, but, no but,
3: question. But John's right. I mean, it's the same in the airplane industry. I mean, you have so much capital flowing through these companies that work stoppages, work stoppages for public companies are crippling. So, so you, so you, so you want, you, you know, you want to, you, you want to. Come to agree with the unions to prevent that from going, and that goes back to my original point, which is the the, the com- good companies today do everything possible to keep a union to 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 keep labor out because because they they don't the, you know the, the work rules slow up produ- production, but the threat of strike throws up production and so it behooves any manufacturing industry today to do things right with their workers so they don't unionize
2: well you know I- and I know some of that, uh, and, and I generally think there's always two sides to every story. But I do think that at the end of the day, look at where the labor is today and what they're doing in the plants, working with management. Uh, they know that if, if nothing else, if nothing else, they know that if the auto plants go away, they go away. So there's a mutual effort and, and what is a model plan today? It's such a different place than it was in the
1: 30s and 40s. Even the 70s, because I worked them in the well, 70s They're, Italia, yeah, they're I mean, way you better get, than even need, that. You need, you need college, ed- you know, two years of college before you're you, even going to get Here's what higher. I wonder, Bob, is no. I, I understand, to Henry's point, and agree with it actually, why management does not want a union in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I don't understand, and maybe you can give us some insight here, why was Briggs so disrespectful of his workers. I mean, it's one thing to say we want, you know, uh, you know uh, a flexible workforce. We want to keep our, our wages down or, or certainly our labor costs down. But, I mean, the way they treated the workers in that Briggs plant was totally unacceptable. Why? And Henry Ford was the same way. And I'm wondering, Briggs and Ford are kind of the same. Uh, very little education. Briggs, you know, quit school at 14, went to work. He started out as a common laborer. right. Very bright guy, obviously. You know, he didn't get to the top by accident. But do you have any insight? Why did these people disrespect and treat their workers so poorly? Well, of course,
2: the bottom line was one of the reasons. It was about money. Uh, Henry Ford, we talk about the $5 uh, dollar a day wage, but not everybody. In fact, most people actually didn't get their $5 wage. And so and, and there was a whole spying operation set up that if you lived in a certain way, uh, Boom! You were, you know you'd get uh, 2.75, not the five dollars. I mean you know so that happened. What did Henry, what did Ford do when he went to the five dollar wages? He, uh, he 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 sent his uh, body manufacturing to Briggs, where they paid cheap wages. So I mean he's balancing everything out, as did Briggs. I mean it's it's a sad story about Briggs because they were a very creative company. They built uh, some of the first most uh, unique, uh, totally inline line uh, bodies that, that were made. Enclosed, Enclosed bodies. Because bodies. in the early yes. days, there was no roof was to the body. car. Exactly. They did it, and he
1: found a way to do it cheaper. So it was a, a really neat story. Just, just so some people don't know, because after reading your book, I had to go do some research of my own. Briggs was very pioneering. They bought the LeBaron yes. Body Works Company, that, that, and all of us know the Chrysler LeBaron. Well, guess what? It was an old coachworks company. They did some of the original woodies, you know, with the wood on the outside of the car. They were very innovative, and they did a lot of styling before the car companies had their own internal styling department. But then something happened in Briggs where they became so
2: terrified of the unions. This goes back to '32, before the UAW and they had a terrible strike in 32 but they all of a sudden the management shifted and it shifted to going after the unions or uh, any possibility of a union and rather than on that creative side and you could see it in the company and you could see how after 32 the company really wasn't the same company because their focus wasn't on creativity it was on how we're going to get these bastards from the UAW. Yeah,
3: and that, and, that, and that's and that's such a mistake. And and again, look at look at the, the United States today. Where is all the employment in the in the auto industry? It's all in non-union shops. It's in. It's in the transplants have come well, here, and, and, not
0: all, but, all really but, yeah, but big word, but half. certainly. I mean,
3: no, I mean, no, I mean the, 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 but you look at the growth in auto, in auto, in, in, in auto employment. The last just couple
0: decades. The terms is important.
3: Yeah, has all has all yep. been non-union with the, with the transplants, and it's been the union jobs that have been going away. And, and I'll give you a good and 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 I think that's management, but I think unions are learning from that as well. And I'll give you a good example. There's a there's a uh, there's a, a town outside of Indiana. I covered this story a couple years ago, uh, and and it was a stamping plant, GM stamping plant, uh, had to be closed during the restructuring, and uh, JD Norman came in to take over the stamping plant. And they said if we're going to keep this plant open, uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to cut your wages in half to, to $16 an hour, and and the union because of the because of the way the union had structured its national contract, the union voted to shut down that plant, eliminate 600 jobs. That's the, the, which would be jobs for a new generation that destroyed a lot of local businesses. I mean, this was a union that basically destroyed a community so that the 600 workers at that plant would go on to more senior positions elsewhere in the, in the, in the country. And I think workers at VW and workers at Kia look at that, and they say the, the unions are a barrier to employment. That's the question.
0: How did the UAW, because the, the early days of it. The story is of communicating and explaining, you want me on your side to the workers, get me on your side and your life will be better, your job will be more secure. Has the union lost the ability to communicate that to people?
2: Well, yes and no. It was very interesting, and this is anecdotal, but uh, when uh, General Motors was going through bankruptcy, I several times uh, listened to television interviews and workers would say, my God, I, I have a union that's protecting me. Without the union, where would I be? And to your point about workers, uh, you, the union jobs are gone. My understanding is through part, the negotiations that have gone on, union jobs are coming back from Mexico and other places. So it's not all black and white. Uh, I think in the South, and uh, it, there are some incredible cultural issues. Uh, I could you come to uh, some uh, uh, dinners with my in-laws who are from the South, and we would have an interesting discussion because they just, you mention UAW, and they go nuts. They don't know why they're going nuts. You know, the salaries they're making are not very good. They don't have very good benefits. But, boy, they just, unions, that, that's just a, a foul word. And so there's a challenge that labor has to... Uh, to make sure people understand what's going on. And it's a hard challenge. Uh, and I don't know that I've got all the answers, except I do know that based on what history tells us, labor unions can be very good. You know, people talk about our declining middle class. We haven't had a middle class is basically where it was in 1973. Wasn't well, it funny that as the middle class has declined, so has union membership? Well, maybe... If union membership had been more stable, maybe our our middle class would be better. Are our kids really going to be better off in the future? This may be the first generation where that gets turned around.
3: Well, I, I, and one of the exciting developments I think that's happened in the state, and this is very much a part of the Southern culture that you talk about, is the advent of the right-to-work movement. Mm-hmm. And and I think with the right-to-work movement, I mean, for a long time since I've been covering politics, before I was a before I, I joined this special uh, class of auto reviewers, but in covering politics, the the uh, the UAW had become a political arm of the Democratic Party and, and was and, and, and was feeding money to the Democratic Party. And there was a lot of members who who felt alienated by that. And I think with the right to work movement, I think it's gonna refocus unions on the worker, that we, we have to make sure that I don't the think workers it will, are happy. I don't yeah. think it will,
1: not in the case of the UAW. And the reason I say that is, the UAW is already in, I want to say, six or seven right-to-work states, yep. two of which have, just in the last few years, flipped to right-to-work. Right. And the union has lost a negligible number of members. And there's a very interesting thing here that there's a, a true difference between blue-collar unions and white-collar unions. And the blue-collar people, brothers and sisters, stick with their union. The white-collar, not so much. Well, I think there's another issue. The white-collar bleed is. I I want to hear Bob on this
2: because we're getting down to the very end. Uh, Well, I think there's another issue, and it's really important, and especially for people at this table. Uh, What did we go through in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s? Poor production, poor quality, quality. Well, when you've got workers who are maybe at odds with each other, about uh, dealing with a, uh, uh, collecting union dues, whatever the case might, joining the union, that is not good for the auto industry, and I think that's a potential problem. I think the big three, at least some people there, they've realized that, and they kind of, I think they kind of wish they took a little stronger role on that issue uh, back a couple of years ago. The other thing, I think that's really important, when we talk about right to work, people it sounds good. But you know, what's not talked about is that you don't want to be a member of the union? Fine, don't be a member. But yet under federal law, if I'm a union and I negotiate a contract for my union members, the non-union members get all the same benefits. Is that fair?
1: I don't think so. And and with that, we're gonna have to wrap up. We we got a whole nother show here that we're (laughs) going to have to shoot. As you can tell, this book has uh, sparked a whole bunch of debate right here at this table. I highly recommend it. I learned a ton. It's called Built in Detroit. Where can you get it? Uh, You can get it on uh, Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com at
2: any format. And uh, it's at some bookstores in the Detroit area, but for sure you can
1: get it there. Bob, thanks so much. Same for Mark and Henry, too. And I want to thank all of you for having
0: tuned in.